day three, three days in a row podcasting. Who'd have ever thought that? Although I've gotten a little bit faster on my editing, but it still takes so long. For, I mean, it takes, you know, 45 minutes to record the podcast. It's basically me just sitting here talking the whole time. And then I got to take it and take out all the little throat clearings and dead silences and stumbling over words and I'm going to cut all that stuff out and that takes an hour and a half sometimes two hours then you got to go find the music then you got to download the music you got to chop it up put it in there I don't think I'll have the time to do the uh, production like I did towards the end of the Nicaragua ones because I had all the time in the world then and I would just you know download a bunch of sounds insert them appropriately trying to win some kind of award like This American Life, you know? I don't know. But I probably won't be doing that. I'll just have some music at the beginning, some music at the end, and a bunch of jibba-jabba. I woke up this morning to it pouring down rain, and it was on the tin roof of this cabin, and it was still super dark at like 8 o'clock this morning, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go back to sleep. So I went back to sleep, and it kept raining and thunder and lightning, and I finally got out of bed at like 10.30, the dogs were starting to pace, at which point, you know, it's time to get up and let them out. But I'm enjoying my uh, my getaway here. I'm kind of torn about the internet situation. At first, I almost booked a cabin that had absolutely no internet and no cell phone service. And after being here, I'm kind of glad that this place has, um, it has the AT&T hotspot and it hasn't been working right. So then I've kind of been hotspotting off my phone, but it only gets one bar And so, yeah, it hasn't been the greatest, but that's okay. Like I've been doing kind of my recording and editing. And then uh, yesterday I went to town and uploaded stuff. And last night, man, I don't know what happened. I was on my phone. After I upload the podcast, I want to listen back to it through the phone and whatever type of speaker I have. So I tried to do it. I figured out that I uploaded the wrong file. And so it was basically, it was too... It was a double-up episode of 44. And so throughout the mayhem of trying to delete it and pull it offline, I accidentally deleted like three other podcasts, and I can't get them to upload now because we have no internet. So, yeah, I had a few people last night. They were like, hey, dude, your thing's not working. I was like, I know. I messed it up. So after I finish recording this, I'm going to edit it real quick and run to town and try to get everything sorted out. Another thing that I'm bummed about is that it rained last night and my hammock got soaking wet. And it may not sound like a big deal, but the thing is like 100% cotton. It's going to take a few days to dry out. So the sun just popped out and I've got it hanging in the sun. I don't think it'll dry by the end of today, but we'll see. It depends on if it clouds back up. Kind of a bummer. Kind of a bummer. But it brings me back to the Nicaragua days of, you know, internet working sporadically. I think I had a whole bunch of rants in the first 20 episodes about the internet not working. It's crazy how dependent we become on things like that. You know, if we're sitting there and we're bored and our mind isn't occupied, the first thing we do is to pick up some device and start poking at it. And I was talking to Juliet yesterday, and we were having a discussion about uh, coronavirus and how social media has uh, perpetuated the, uh, the spread of hysteria. And so she's younger. She's 24, I think. And so she doesn't really know what it was like to grow up without social media and the internet and everything in the palm of your hand. And I was explaining to her, like, if this had happened 20 years ago, 
the, the coronavirus, the word would have gotten out that there's a virus going around and you have, um, you know, higher than a 99% chance of, of surviving it. So people would have said, use caution. Don't be stupid. If you're at risk, stay home. And uh, that's, that's all they would have been able to do. I, I, I am fully certain the country would have not been shut down. But I digress. I'm not here to talk about the coronavirus. I'm here to talk about how easy life is today compared to 100 years ago in the 1920s. 1920. Just a few things to compare the difference. The most common form of entertainment was the radio. So the family would gather around the radio at a certain time and listen to shows. And they would listen to sports and probably some music too. But I imagine that the, <laughs> the disagreements on what show they were going to listen to. And you know what? If you don't hear it, it's gone. It's gone. There's no recording. There's no on-demand. There's no borrowing it from a friend who's made a copy after they rented it. Like All that stuff is just you, you get one shot and that's it. I would imagine there was probably a way to get a transcript where you could probably... Um, you could probably mail them a piece of paper with an envelope in it, and they would put more paper in the envelope and mail it back to you. So within two or three weeks, you might have a transcript, and then you'd have to go through and read every word that, that was said on the radio. And I've gone back and listened to some of those old radio broadcasts, and they were actually produced pretty well. They had, you know, they had sound effects, and uh, they really got got your imagination involved. Um, that's that's partly why I like I like to talk format a lot because or the, like the audio format because it it leaves your brain to fill in the gaps and you know adults we don't use creativity much we don't we're not very creative unless we're the artist type or we do art for a living then of course you know but the average person their creative side doesn't get used much and especially me like I'm not a I'm not all around creative person but I do like it when I listen to things and it forces me to create visions in my mind that I wouldn't ever do. So that's why I don't watch much TV or movies. I just, I don't know. I would rather listen to people talk. Going back to the 1920s, um, almost every mom was a stay-at-home mom. There was no career moms. Two-thirds, so 66% of the population over the age of 14 was married. Cars were just starting to become available. Henry Ford, you know, his, his goal was to not... Uh, not produce a car for the elite, but to produce a car that every man could own. And it was such a cool concept, uh, all because of the assembly line. Anyway, people didn't just have cars. You, didn't, you couldn't just Uber up a ride. You had to plan your whole trip out. Your whole day had to get planned out. If you wanted to go somewhere, you had to know exactly where you were going and how you were going to get there and how you are going to get home because there's no Google Maps on your phone. I can't imagine the guys that just started exploring the U.S. with no maps. And they made rough maps, and they made them work, and they found their way back. I mean, that's daunting to me. Like, the guys who sailed around the world just using the stars? Are you kidding me? Like, now the, the technology that we have, that's just, just another example of how far we've come in 100 years. And, like, life gets easier and easier as we go forward. And so as, as our life gets easier and easier, we try to find uh, smaller and smaller needs to meet, right? So when you first invent the car, you're not worried about air-conditioned and heated leather seats. But as you refine things and you get things get more improved and better and better and better, they're still always looking for a way to improve the car. 
And so now we're about to figure out how to make cars drive themselves. And then, like, what's, what's next after that? I mean, in just 100 years, we went from hardly anyone has cars, only wealthy people have cars, to, oh, yeah, everyone has a car and lots of them drive themselves. 100 years. What about home automation? What about being able to walk into your house and it knows when you're there and it knows how you like the temperature and it knows what kind of music you like in the background? And it could probably be tied to your bed, you know, if you have one of those electric hard or soft controlled beds it could probably tie to that adjust your bed for you uh there's probably a way to have the uh, water temperature stored uh based on who's taking a shower electronically so you just hit a button or you walk in there with your phone it knows that you're in there and it adjusts the water temperature of the shower to your liking like that doesn't seem that far off but 100 years ago it's a it would have been a um science fiction movie and i know that you know a lot of people knock Americans or the U.S. for always charging and and pushing the boundaries and testing things and always trying to to create a better mousetrap. But if you think about it, the, the people who founded this country were those types of people. They probably had a stable, safe, secure life in Europe. They were probably, you know, paying too much in taxes. They weren't happy with that. They didn't like the way that they were being ruled. They didn't like the way that they were being forced to worship the king and his church. So they'd had enough. They were willing to leave all the security and the safety behind to risk it all. And so that's the kind of people who founded this country. And that's a, that's a cultural thing. You're not born with it. It's taught. You have to learn it. And with each generation, children learn that from their parents. Drive, creativity, pushing the boundaries, hard work, integrity. So with each generation, that just gets perpetuated a little more and a little more and a little more. And, and I mean, the U.S. is the, the front runner of everything. We do everything in excess. Poor people are fat. Like, there's no other, there's no other country where poor people are fat. I mean, there might be a couple, but... And everyone might say, well, that's because, you know, cheap food's fattening. Well, that's not the case. It's, it's because poor people have enough discretionary income to buy whatever they want to buy. And if they wanted to spend the money on healthier food, they have enough to do it. They just wouldn't be able to eat as much. And, and part of the, the downfall to having all this opportunity and all these options is that we kind of take it for granted and we lose, we lose sight of the big picture. We become ungrateful for everything that we do have and how far we've come. I don't know. I really didn't have this planned out, this episode planned out, but I think I'm going to call it like, don't be hating on America. You know, there's people out there right now that think that we have it all wrong, that we need to drastically change the way that we do things. We need to change the way the police operate. And, and I just wonder if these people have ever been to a foreign country. Have they ever been to Nicaragua where like you're told, hey, do not mess with the cops. Don't mess with them. And people take it seriously. And here we expect cops to just put up with our crap. And we, we think that we should be able to walk up to a police officer and treat them in a manner that if we were to treat someone in a bar, we'd get our faces punched in. And we expect cops not to do that. So because we've made that expectation clear, now people go do it. They go do it just, just to test the cops or to see what they can get away with. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I'm fine with people being scared of the cops. I mean, that, 
sometimes you have to use fear to maintain order. And that's what they do in prisons. You don't mess with the guards. Think about explaining, and I'm not even referring to anything in particular, any specific incident or time or whatever. Just think about all these times that riots occur and there's looting. And we're not even talking about protests. We're just talking about riots and looting. And how the police just stand down. They just stop. They don't do anything. Uh, Mayors typically say, give them room. They're angry. Okay. But why? I can't imagine someone from Uganda asking questions about this situation. They would be like, so let me get this straight. You guys got people out that are speaking out against the government and they're holding signs and they're like, mocking government officials and leaders and like they they want to have like they want to hang the president and so they're they're out there in public doing this uh-huh yep yep we let them do that yeah we let people say whatever they want to say that you know they're allowed to march and and do things and express their opinions it's important to us it's part of our constitution wow that's incredible to be so lucky to be able to do that and then as the person from Uganda reads the article they see whoa like these people get unruly, they get they get like angry and they're mad and they start breaking stuff and they're destroying things. Yeah, yeah, you know, sometimes they're really, really upset. Um, and so they break stuff. Huh. And no one stops them. No, no, we don't stop them. We just kind of let them let them do it, you know? It it's just all covered by insurance. Could you imagine something like that happening in Nigeria? The police just stopping and letting people burn and destroy Things in the LA riots in 1992, I believe, there was one point in time there was 916 buildings on fire. If that were to happen anywhere else, well, it would never get that far. You know, the, the guy would walk up to a building with a book of matches and he'd get busted in the back of a head with an AK 47. That's how it would go down in Uganda. So I think it all kind of ties together. Like the more comfortable we get, the more we just allow things to happen. And not even think about them. I mean, you know what happens when the when the police don't have the the tools or the means to do their job. Whenever the you know they, there's the law of the land that they are expected to uphold and enforce, and whenever their their hands are tied and they can't do that, it's taken away from them. You know what happens? They become corrupt. Nicaragua, perfect example. I use it as an example because I've spent a lot of time there and I know exactly how things work. So the police in Nicaragua they can't even afford a car to chase people down who speed. So they have one guy at the top of a hill who's got a radar gun. Two or three hills down, they've got another guy. And if they shoot someone who's speeding, they radio, hey, this guy is speeding. He's in this color car. The dude steps out in the middle of the road, puts his hands up, and stops you. So they don't have police cars. They don't have... And they do have police cars. They, ha- they don't have gas for them. Like, I've heard stories of people calling the cops, and they're like, we don't have any fuel for our car. That we can't come. We can't come service you. You know how much it costs to get out of a traffic ticket by paying a cop? About ten dollars, ten to twenty bucks. So whenever you disallow people from from doing what is told to them to do their job, they stop caring. Why would they care? Why would they care? Imagine if you were a parking lot attendant, and day one you get hired, and the boss says to you, "Hey, uh, your job is to collect money when when people come in and uh, and park." Okay, it's uh it's fifteen bucks an hour. And you're standing outside in the blazing heat. And if people um, if people park in the wrong spots or they're doing something wrong, you need to go tell them like, "Hey, uh, you need to move your car." And you know, just kind of kind of make sure they do what they're they're supposed to do. It's part of your job, okay? So fast forward a little bit. Now the boss man comes to you and he's like, "Hey, um, from now on, uh, it doesn't like you're not allowed to tell anyone 
uh, where they can park, where they can't park. They just have to come in and uh, they can just go wherever they, they want to go. Oh, and by the way, we're cutting your pay or defunding you, actually. Okay, so my job is to now take the money from the people for parking, but not enforce if they park at the incorrect spot. Yep, that's right. Somebody pulls in and they say, hey, I want to park over there. And the, and the guy looks over there and he's like, well, I can't, I can't really stop him. Uh, yeah, if you want to park over there, that's two extra bucks. Oh, okay. So now the guy, instead of paying five, he pays two extra, pays seven bucks, and he gets to park wherever he wants to. And after doing that, and no one can get in trouble, right? So this guy who parks where he wants to, he's not held accountable by anyone because the he's been told by the boss of the parking lot attendant, you can't enforce it. They have to just park where they want to park. The person who works there is happy. They get an extra $2, and there's no, nothing's lost. But now you've got a situation where he who has the most money gets the best parking spots. And people, they, they want to complain about corruption and how corrupt the system is. And he who has the most money has the most power. But doing things like defunding the police and telling them not to enforce laws, telling them not to maintain order, that's just like a recipe for corruption. You know how many cops don't want to be cops right now? Lots of them. You know what overcomes objections? Money. So I don't know where this whole defund the police thing came from. Because if our goal is to stop police brutality, wouldn't it make sense that we need to train them on how to do things differently? And, and, and listen, I, I'm not saying the cops are too brutal. I'm not. I actually think I wish, I wish they were more brutal. I wish that if you walked up to a cop and you screamed in his face, he had the right to punch you. I think we should hold not cops to a higher standard, but I think we should hold civilians to a higher standard. Like, no, you're not allowed to treat him like you treat a, a, a bar fly. He is a police officer. You're not. You don't get to run up to him. What about the guards in London with the big fuzzy hats? I can't think of their, I can't think of their name, but I've seen them in person with my own eyes. You know what they told me? There's a line. There's a white or yellow line on the ground right in front of that dude. And he's standing like a statue. He's not allowed to talk. He can barely blink. He can barely breathe. He's not supposed to move. And if you cross that line, they have every right to bust you upside the head. And people don't test them because they respect them. Is it too much to ask that we require people to respect the cops? You know, I have seen no statistical report that says our cops are too hard on people. It's all, it's all anecdotal. It's all how you feel when you see this video. And I'm not going to use the term bad apples, bad apples, because that's, it's, it's, it's overused now. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of tired of hearing it. But in every profession, there are bad people. There's a doctor right now, somewhere in the world, maybe even in the country, who's doing bad things to someone who's under anesthetics. There's a psychologist somewhere right now that's trying to convince someone to do something bad and harm themselves. It's just the law of averages. It's nothing more than a giant bell curve, and there's people outside the curve of acceptability. So statistically, it's almost impossible to stop the outliers from doing bad things without adversely affecting everyone inside the curve. This also applies to guns and gun safety. The outliers are the ones who go shoot up to school. A vast majority of gun owners don't do that. So how much are we willing to punish the people who behave on account of the people who don't behave? That's the hard decision. That's the hard question we have to answer. And I feel like the same is true with the cops. There's people that are bad. There's people that are good. I, I believe wholeheartedly that most police officers wake up and, and this goes against, I've changed. 
I've changed how I feel about cops over the last six months. And, and I've gotten to know a couple more. And I really think that most of them wake up in the morning wanting to do good. They want to do good. Now, I'm not going to deny that I think that there's a certain personality that police officers have, but I think that can be said about any job. There's a kind of personality that people who work in construction have. There's a kind of personality who people who work at nursing homes have. And so that's what it is. But taking money away from people that deserve more respect and telling them not to do their job, tough. That's a tough position to be in. I'm, I'm glad I'm not there. I could never be a cop, especially today. There is no way. I don't have the temper. Okay. I don't know. I hope that all fits together. <laughs> you know, sometimes I sit down and I make bullet points on like, I'm going to follow this. I'm going to talk about this and this and that. Today, I just started talking. I started thinking about the police. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I've got a Ronnie update. Anyone who listened to the last set of podcasts knows about Ronnie. So he was the caretaker at the first house that I lived at. And he came with me to the second house He's kind of my right-hand dude. You know, I would leave for a while. He'd watch Bentley and Bronco. I mean, I'm talking like a few weeks, you know. Him and his wife would come stay at the house because they didn't live on site full-time. They lived somewhere else. So we got to be pretty good buddies, and he's doing fine. He's um, he's worked at a couple other houses as their caretaker. Uh, they refer to them as cuidadores, which is like uh, care after, care looker for, or something like that. And, uh, yeah, he's changed jobs a few times. Um, he had another little girl, so he had a boy um, right before I met him, it was well, his boy was 10 months old whenever we met. And since then, he had a, another boy on the way. His wife had a miscarriage, but he told me that he was going to name him Brandon, and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I've also got another little boy, my friend Polo, who uh, he worked for me in construction for a long time. He had a little boy, and he named him Brandon. I thought that was so cool. I was just joking with him one day, and I, he told me his wife was pregnant. I said, what are you going to name your boy, Brandon? And he's like, yeah, maybe, thinking he was just kidding, you know, because his name was like uh, Jose Polo Gutierrez, like there's no Brandon. And I'll be danged if he, he didn't name him Brandon. So, yeah, I don't know. That would have been two. But anyway, so she had a miscarriage, but she ended up having a, a little girl and then named her Sandra after my mom, which I thought was super cool. Um, so yeah, Sandrita and Ranesito are the two children's names, but yeah, you know, every now and then he calls me or, or messages me and he wants $20 or $50 or a hundred dollars. And, you know, for the first year or so I did it. No problem. I said, yeah, here you go. Here's some help. And then I finally got to feeling like I was just an ATM machine, which it's hard because I mean, I had the money to give him money, but I just didn't feel good about giving it away. And I don't know why. It's a cultural thing. Like they, they feel like it's okay to ask for money. Um, they, see, they see us doing things that they would never be able to do or never be able to have. And so it's not, the, it's not the I shouldn't ask him for money because he can't afford to give it to me. It's like I should ask him for money because he can't afford to give it to me. He's got so much money, it's no big deal for him to give it out. And that's just not the way that our culture is. You know, Americans, we don't... You know, we're kind of sheepish when we have to ask for money. We don't really like it. It's kind of a, it's a pride thing. No matter how much someone has, you know, I don't ever want to have to ask someone for money, even if they owe it to me. If I've given someone money and they owe it to me, I don't, I'm not going to go ask for it. I mean, it's just, we don't like it. We don't like the way it feels. So I, I wrote him a couple messages and I said, Hey, look, you know, like, please, please don't ask me for money, Ronnie. Like I, I know times are tough and, and, and when I come see you, I'm going to bring you gifts and, and I have no problem helping you out a little bit. But it just feels like that the basis of our friendship is just money. And I don't know. I didn't like it. So I think he took it well. He still messages me and asks me how things are going. And, 
you know, he, he, I think he understood it. At least I hope he did. So as I was doing the other episode uh, the other day that chronicled uh, the timeline of my travels and everything that's kind of happened, I was going through my photos on my phone to help, help spark some, some memories and, and give me some stories. So I've got a pretty good one. I was in Hungary for a few days before I went to Romania. And um, I just, what I do, when I get to a town, if I'm by myself, I just go walking. I put my backpack, I take a little bit of cash, uh, maybe take a water bottle, some headphones, and I just go walk around the city. And so that's what I did for two days. And I got really sore. There's a bunch of hills and I went hiking up in the hills. And I'd heard about these bathhouses in Hungary. I think they're all over Eastern Europe, but they're pretty popular in Hungary. And there's like these, there's all different sizes and styles. And, you know, there's some that are men only. There's some that are women only. There's some that are the young kids where they kind of go to party. And there's these big giant pools that are hot. And so you'll have four or five different pools and they're all within two or three degrees of each other, but they have the different, different pH values and stuff like that. So you go to the doctor and a prescription might be, you know, go to the bathhouse, spend this much time in this pool, this much time in that pool, this much time in this pool, and then repeat and then go to the sauna. And they actually make it a, a prescription. And so when you have that, it's like cheap to go because like it's the it's socialized Medicare. And so I don't know how it works, but the government pays the bathhouse. But the bathhouses are all private. So you have the big ones and the little ones and everything in between. I didn't want to go to like be around a bunch of tourists. So and I'd also heard that you could go... um get a massage there for like real cheap, like 20 bucks for an hour, hour long massage. So it's like, you know what? All of my massage experiences in other countries have been terrible, specifically Southeast Asia. Because when you go to get a massage in Southeast Asia, it's more than just a massage. I'll, I'll, I'll leave the rest to your imagination. And when you decline that, they get offended. So I learned my lesson. No more massages in Southeast Asia. So I thought maybe, eh, maybe Eastern Europe is different. So go to the bathhouse. I found a little neighborhood one. I was like, man, I want to be around a bunch of old Hungarian men that like maybe some of them can speak English and tell me some stories. So I found a little neighborhood one. I go there. I book a massage. They're like, okay, it's going to be an hour and a half for your massage. Um, you want to come back or you want to just hang out here and go to all the, the pools? I was like, I'm just going to hang out here and go jump in the pools. So that's what I did. I was by far the youngest person by 40 years. I don't think there was anyone else under 80. So hour half goes by. I'm feeling loose. My muscles are warm. They're not so tense. I go to the massage room or I go upstairs. I'm like, I'm here for the massage. And they just kind of point. Not, not many people speak English in Budapest, well, especially the older people. So they kind of point and I go in this room and it looks like a hospital. Like there's the, the curtains that go around the beds and I hear people getting massages like directly on the other side of this curtain. So I'm like, well, they're not big on privacy, but okay, whatever, no problem. So I'm sitting there on the edge of the bed, just kind of waiting for the, the massage therapist to come in. And this big burly dude comes in and he's like, hi. I'm like, hey, how's it going? He's like, I'm Igor. I don't remember his name, but I'm going to call him Igor. I'm Igor. Remove clothes. And I was like, Oh, go ahead and get undressed right here? He's like, yes. So he's like standing there watching me. So I kind of turn my back to him. I strip off all my clothes. I get on the bed. I get underneath the sheet. And this big, giant dude starts rubbing on my shoulders. I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. He's like, yes. I'm like, uh, is there a, a female that I could get a massage from? And listen, I know there's people out there that are going to say, what's the big deal? It's just a massage. I wish I, wish I didn't care. I really do. But... I just, and it's nothing sexual. It has nothing to do with it. It's just like, I don't want a big man hand 
like rubbing on me. I don't know. Maybe I'm insecure. I don't know. You can call me whatever you want to. Look, I know it's an unpopular opinion to some people, but I'm just being honest here. And it's just, it, I, I couldn't relax. I couldn't, I couldn't relax. And I have, it's, it's an issue, whatever. Call it an issue. So I was like, uh, you don't have like a, a female? He said, no, this is massage only, nothing else. I'm like, yeah, I know, dude. Like, I, I know it's nothing else, but I would just rather have a woman. He's like, wait here. I'm like, okay. So I'm lying in the bed, naked, with a sheet over me, and a woman comes in. And she's like, she's the manager. She's like, I am hearing you want a woman for massage. And I go, yes, yeah, I, I would kind of rather have a, a woman uh, massage therapist. And she's like, we don't have any. I'm like, okay. So what's the next step? She's like, you can leave. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> That's what I would have chosen anyway. But I'm like, <laughs> they kicked me out of the massage place because I didn't want a dude massage. Ugh. Massage experiences in foreign countries just don't. I'm, I mean, I'm just going to call it done, I think. Is there something wrong with me? Is that, is that normal? I don't know. I never claimed to be normal. All right. I'm going to give a dog training pro tip of the day. So let's just say you don't like dogs begging. You don't like them sitting in your lap, breathing on you when you're trying to eat. And you have no problem tossing them a little piece of food now and then. But you've figured out that that causes them to get all up on you and they get in your face. And no amount of, buddy, go away. Buddy, leave me alone. Buddy, go over there. Buddy, here's a piece of food. Now stop. Like, no, no amount of that works. We can all, all agree to that. So here's what you do. You, you have some food when you're eating. And what I did was I used a tortilla because it, if it hits the ground, it doesn't make a mess. So take the tortilla. I tear it up into a bunch of little tiny pieces, smaller than a dime, little pieces. And this, is, works, this works for a dog who's already begging. So let's say the dog is sitting there. He's begging. You don't want him to just do that. You want him to go somewhere else. Throw a piece of food about 10 feet away. Pick a spot on the floor. He's going to go get it. He's going to come right back. Do it again. Same spot. You're, shoot, you're shooting for a target, bullseye. And it works best if you can, if there can be a definitive line. So if you have a, a drop down into your dining area or step up or somewhere where he knows his, his spatial relation. So a floor transition that goes from tile to wood. It, it, and if you can't, if you don't have that, then an imaginary line works. You've just got to make sure that you hold your standard the same. And you'll see what I'm talking about as I continue to explain this. So you throw the piece of tortilla to the same spot over and over and over again. And then you... Before he can come back to you, you toss him a little piece. So this is all, this is all the first session, the first session. So he, you throw a piece over there, he runs over there, he gets it. And when he whirls around to come back, you throw another piece. And then you start throwing him over there while, while he's there before he can come back. And then you do this for, I don't know, four, five, six meals. He's going to just start going over there on his own. So now that becomes the place where he gets his little treats. Now, what you have to do, and this is something that I failed at because I didn't pay enough attention, and I don't really care that much to fix it, is that he'll, he'll go there, and then if he doesn't get a piece of food fast enough, he, he'll run over to you, and then you can look at him or give him a cue, and then he'll run back over there. So that's where I kind of went wrong with, with Gypsy, is that I let her get up, come to me, and then I'll look at her, and she'll run back to the spot. So that became, it became a little game for her. Um, so if you don't want that to happen, you need to methodically space out the time that you're tossing the treats to them. So on day one, once they're offering to go to that spot, 
then, then that's when you start start decreasing the frequency of of the treat. Now, if the dog gets up and comes to you, you waited too long. So you want to use the minimum amount of treats to keep that dog in that area. And the only time the dog gets a treat is when it's in that area while you're eating, of course. And so you want to just pay attention to when he pops up and you think to yourself, okay, I waited too long. I needed to give him one before. So you'll start paying attention to the, the clock or the timing of it. Like, okay, he can, go, he can go a minute now. When he can go a minute, then you start pressing it. Then you can go two minutes and then you go three minutes. Then you can randomize it. You can do one after one minute. Then you can wait five minutes and give him maybe two back to back. And then you can stop and you can wait three minutes and then you can go seven minutes and then eight minutes. And then eventually... When you eat, he'll just go run over there and he'll lie down for 30 minutes while you're eating. And then occasionally you can throw him a piece. You just don't want to do it too frequently because then they'll start to expect it. When they don't get it, they pop up and come to you. So I don't know. That's, that's how I deal with begging with my young dogs. I mean, Bentley and Bronco are too old. So they just they lie down right next to me and I just drop pieces on the floor for them. I have no problem breaking bread with dogs or letting them lick my plate. It's like my pastor used to say, boy. You put a lot nastier things in your mouth. Alrighty. I think that's going to wrap up today's program. We are at 43 minutes and 8 seconds. And I'm saying that because, take note, after I condense it down and I cut out a bunch of gaps, you'll see how much time was wasted. Thanks so much for listening. Life in Paradise podcast. Check out our website, newasisbrewing.com. That's N-U-E-C-E-S brewing.com. And that's about it. Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo. Tranquilo.